TM, welcome to LexLine, brought to you by yours truly, Carlo and Jenko, in conjunction with our friends at Rug Radio, where we talk about the latest legal developments in crypto, NFT, and blockchain law. Jenko is going to try to make it today. However, he might have an IRL conflict. So I'm going to proceed with the disclaimer and jump right into the conversation. Matt, Mike, thank you for joining if you want to come up and join the conversation, by all means, ask to speak while I do our disclaimer. As always, nothing we talk about should ever be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, you should consult a lawyer. You should do that privately, not on a recorded Twitter space. We do record these spaces if you come up to join us to talk and be a part of the conversation. And if you miss the show live, you can always catch us on Apple and Spotify podcasts. So a couple things I want to jump into and discuss is, number one, did not get a chance to circle back and talk about the OpenSea verdict. That was certainly a huge development in the space, a historic trial, first ever trial of an NFT uh, fraud investigation case. And the unfortunate outcome for Nate is a guilty verdict. And now his lawyers are going to have to prepare for the sentencing phase of the case and start to explore potential appellate issues that might come up in that case. The government uh, brought an indictment charging wire fraud and money laundering, as we well know, those who've been closely watching this case. The government charged that Nate allegedly used inside information in violation of a confidentiality agreement that he had And there's been some debate back and forth about how formal that agreement was, but essentially used that information to front run uh, NFTs that were to be featured on OpenSea's website and then trade on those NFTs. And then after trading on those NFTs, moving the proceeds, the ETH from those transactions to other wallets, including, uh, as I observed firsthand during the trial, testimony about moving the ETH to a ledger, his hardware wallet, which in our world is pretty standard operating procedure. If you want to take your funds off of a custodial and put them into a non-custodial situation where they can be more secure, but obviously the government can take that information and can certainly create the inference that that might be some intent to potentially launder the funds. An interesting Uh, aspect of this that I pinned up, and I'd love to get some thoughts if anyone wants to join, is the jury questions that came during the deliberation phase of this case. I got to observe the defense rest, and then the judge instructed the parties to come back for the charge conference, and closing arguments were going to be that following Monday. So the jury began their deliberations on Monday, and the jury return some questions for the court. And those questions uh, gave a bit of an interesting insight into exactly where the jury's thought process might have been on all of this. Um, I found it fascinating to get that look. First off, one of the things that Matt and I had discussed and Jenko is this issue of jury deadlock. And it seems like for a short moment in this case, the jury was deadlocked because they did write the court and they did let the court know that they were at that moment in time unable to reach a verdict. And I'm sure the court gave the 
as we talked about the Allen charge type of a instruction to the jury to try and overcome that deadlock. And clearly they did because they came back with a unanimous verdict of guilt as to both counts. The jury wanted some testimony read back as well in a juror note. And that testimony came from Devin Finzer, who was OpenSea's CEO. And an interesting twist in this case, OpenSea's CEO, uh, according to what BlockWorks reported, told U.S. prosecutors uh, that the case against Chastain is, quote, unfair, end quote, and affecting the former head of products mental health. This was reported per court documents. So the CEO of OpenSea turned out to be somewhat of a sympathetic witness in Nate's case. And the jury, for whatever reason, wanted to see that testimony read back. And they calculated that into their deliberations as well. Another question that really piqued my curiosity and I think is going to be a real point of contention if this does get appealed. The jury asked the question, quote, if the defendant viewed the information as confidential, but Devin Finzer, the other signatory to the confidentiality, to the confidentiality agreement, did not, is that enough to consider it confidential? Well, that is kind of the crux of this case because that touches upon what, quote-unquote, insider information uh, Nate relied upon in breach of what company policy to front-run the listing of these NFTs and to, I guess, extract the profit from the flipping of these NFTs. So this raises some interesting issues, and I think they're going to be issues that will be pursued on appeal, Another follow-up, and I'm bringing Matt up to join the conversation. Thank you for joining. Um, this issue of confidentiality, the court responded in a separate jury question about this specific issue and reminded the jury uh, that the first element of count one requires their, the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a scheme or artifice to defraud OpenSea of its property. Specifically in this case, the property was, quote, confidential business information, end quote. Information is, quote, confidential business information if it is acquired or created by a business for a business purpose. So the court went to great lengths to clarify that. And there was also some confusion about this distinction between insider trading and, and, and inside information the court went on to add, as these instructions suggest, the focus of the inquiry with respect to whether the information at issue was, quote, confidential business information is on the company, namely OpenSea. Ultimately, it looks like the jury resolved these issues. But before they returned their verdict, there was one more interesting question that came down. And then I want to get Matt's take on all this. The jury then asked the question, quote, in the court of law, can you provide a definition of trade secret? The trial court responded to that question and the meaning of quote trade secret and the meaning of confidential business information are different. Information may qualify as confidential business information, even if it does not constitute a trade secret. In evaluating count one, you should apply the definition of confidential business information as I gave to you. And then after these questions were resolved, the jury returned a guilty verdict. Matt, what is good? Long time no talk. GM, 
Thanks. Thanks for having me up. I, you definitely have read more about the, the jury notes, which are super helpful. And I'm wondering if, if anybody polled the jury or if any media outlets actually spoke to the jurors after and maybe they were able to figure out a little bit more because that's always interesting. Um, but, but I just, I think hearing this and I didn't even know the extent of these notes until you were just mentioning it. The fact that the court wouldn't let him, Nate, I believe, in a motion in limine made uh, to preclude him from offering some expert testimony regarding um, what insider trading or whatever it is may or may not be. Because obviously it's not an insider trading case, but the judge also allowed that term to be used um, so it seems like the jury was a little, a little confused. So, I mean, I'm wondering how much of an impact, uh, those evidentiary rulings are going to have. And, you know, this might be one of those cases where a trial court believes that they did all they could gave curative jury, jury instructions, detailed jury instructions, tried to do it, you know, as best as possible and maybe just get it wrong because, in these cases, that's that's you know, what what happens. You so I feel like first of all, there there has to be an appeal. I mean, I would doubt that he would not appeal this this conviction. And then the appellate court will take a look at it. And then you know, there's different standards of review. Um, but I, there might be a federal equivalent to like harmless error, you know, where a court makes a mistake, but it really it's kind of harmless because the evidence was still so overwhelming. Um, but I, I think these issues have to be addressed on appeal. Um, and there'll be great jurisprudence either. However, they're interpreted, whether the, you know, to sit the, 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 the they affirm the trial court or whether they mo modify it. I mean, it's still going to be, you know, a precedent setting. We have an adjudication, so we have an idea, um, now it's just up to the appellate courts to get a little creative and hopefully um, we get a little bit more clarity through that since, you know, in this country, this is what we're left with. We just have to deal with lawsuits and then proceed accordingly. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of motion practice in this case, and there was a lot of back and forth about um, limiting expert testimony. And uh, I've blogged about that as well a little bit, but not exactly up to speed to be able to get too deep in the weeds on, on what the crux of that debate was. But I expect, like you say, Matt, that there will be an, an appeal of this because at a minimum, even if he were to come through a federal sentencing, and I've talked about the guidelines in this case and how it is a close call, there is some latitude here to go either in the direction of probation or a split sentence because of the, the amount of loss, unless there are other aggravating factors that come up, he of course is going to lose the benefit of acceptance of responsibility for having elected to go to trial. And that's going to impact his guideline calculations. But even in the end, if he were to come out of this with probation, if the court were to make a, an advisory departure downward and give him probation, he's still stuck with a felony conviction for two federal counts, one wire fraud, one money laundering. And that alone is probably a huge enough incentive to appeal because of the damaging consequences that's going to have for his career prospects. What are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah. And 
I agree. And I think the today I just saw a headline that uh, the former uh, Coinbase employee who took a plea, uh, seemingly a negotiated plea. Uh, what's it? The, I don't, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. The Wahil, Wally. Um, yep. Forgive me for butchering the name. Um, but he apparently got two years. I know the loss there was way more. And I want to say it was like, I don't know, maybe it was an excess of a, a million here. I want to say that, you know, like the, the money that they're alleging he made, I think is, is a lot is a lot less. But look at that. You know, that was a plea deal. Um, and he got two years. So I, and that's in the same jurisdiction. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, there's a lot of factors. Obviously, we don't know what level of cooperation might have played into that plea and into that ultimate sentencing recommendation. Also, he did plead guilty and avoided trial, and there's definitely an incentive to do that to limit your downside. The loss numbers in this case are not huge, as you very well observed. It was an interesting case to be the first test case to challenge these issues, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens on appeal, and we'll just have to stay tuned on this one. The next phase of this is going to be Probation is going to prepare their pre-sentence investigation report. They're going to calculate the guidelines. The parties will have a chance to object and to give their own opinion as to the guidelines. And then the case will ultimately proceed to sentencing hearing. And then from that point, it will then end up most likely in an appeal. Mike is in the house as well. Before we pivot to the FTX motions that were filed yesterday, any thoughts on the open C verdict, Mike? Welcome. Morning. Thanks, everybody. Uh, great cover of what's going on. Um, I'm not following this as closely as you are, Carlo, but I did have a question because you posted the uh, jury questions inside um, the chat. So I was looking over the jury questions and that final jury question where they were asking about whether or not the other party considered the, the information confidential or treated it as, as such. That seems to be pretty important in the determination of whether the information is confidential. Because when you, when you read down a little bit further, if, if it's created through business property, the business has to take affirmative steps to continue to make this, this, this property confidential. If they don't take these affirmative steps... It's not considered property. And so based on your recap earlier, it sounded like the CEO of OpenSea did not take affirmative steps. And if they didn't take affirmative steps, it's not property. Am I wrong? Did I miss something? It's certainly an interesting argument to make because you would think if the CEO of the company doesn't regard that information as being uh, inside confidential information, and, and that's what presumably the question is posing, then how can you find him at fault for using that information for his own alleged gain? Our colleague in the space, Ira, has talked about this trial and actually tweeted about this and suggested that this is an unfortunate outcome because it's more or less a criminal trial for something that happens very regularly in the art world which is front running of gallery uh, uh, exhibits by people who have inside information of what's going to be shown in a gallery. 
And this is now somehow being morphed into a quote unquote fraud and money laundering insider trading case because there is this uh, suggestion here that these should be regarded as securities. That did not really get developed in this case very much because the government's theory, as you well put, Mike, is that the, the property that was taken here uh, was not the actual NFTs. It was not a fraud involving the NFTs as much as it was a fraud of this very intangible thing, which is this business information. And I think this is very ripe for appellate review. So I agree with you. This is definitely going to be something that's going to be a bone of contention for the Second Circuit to have to resolve. Other big development in the space is the defense team for Sam Bankman-Fried filed a slew of motions to dismiss yesterday. And uh, in total, seven motions with accompanying affidavits and supporting exhibits were dropped, raising a number of issues, some of which are pretty predictable as far as motions for severance and potential uh, misjoinder of counts. Uh, I saw one with respect to a potential double jeopardy issue. But the more fascinating of the arguments that were raised in the motions to dismiss are one, uh, one motion alleges that the close relationship that the attorneys on the bankruptcy side have in the case has more or less made them sort of quasi prosecutors in this case. And based on that theory, the government uh, is, according to the defense, the government is obligated to provide the defense with discovery and potential Brady and Giglio material, which could impact the credibility of witness testimony or present information that could impact the outcome of the trial and could call into question uh, SBF's guilt. So they're trying to expand the discovery process to cover what's going on in the bankruptcy proceedings, which I found to be an interesting argument. Matt, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, and I got to jump in a little bit, but that's the, the, that whole the crux of all of that is really intriguing to me in terms of you have their bankruptcy counsel and how they were involved. And I was looking through your summary and I didn't read the motion, but I'm wondering in there if there's any mention of like uh, an advice of counsel and that they relied on uh, bankruptcy counsel or whoever it is, Sullivan Cromwell. I don't know who it is. Um, that may be something that he's going to say for trial, but I thought that if they were going to um, make a motion, maybe they would throw that in there. Uh, so I was wondering if you came across that because that all comes down to this really intriguing issue of <laughs> these attorneys. What were they doing? Um, who were they representing? Eh, you might have broke up a little bit, but I know where you're going with this. I'm still processing these motions. A lot was uh, a lot was filed. Gave a very very quick overview, um, and there were affidavits. And I do recall seeing at least one, if I'm not mistaken, in one of the exhibit packets, a Solomon a, a Sullivan Cromwell email talking about uh, or trying to answer a question. So I think you might be onto something there, but going to have to do a deeper dive into the supporting exhibits and, and see exactly how far that argument's going to go and whether 
like you said, there's going to be a turn of events here where it's going to be an advice of counsel defense that could presumably be raised here. Um, another interesting motion was they are attacking the extradition side of the case. Um, they're arguing that the extradition should have been limited to the counts which were in the original indictment, which were the counts that uh, SBF agreed to extradition on, and which were counts that had a similar counterparty offense in the Bahamas, and the argument being that when the superseding indictment dropped with the additional counts that were dropped after SBF was brought to the United States and released on bond, that those are outside of the extradition treaty and outside of the agreement with the Bahamian government and should therefore be, uh, I guess, invalidated. I don't know what remedy you would get in something like that uh, other than to frustrate the government's uh, superseding indictment uh, and, and how they're proceeding in this case. But I guess the argument there is that they exceeded the scope of the extradition agreement and is the remedy to send Sam Bankman back to the Bahamas and uh, be held over on, on, on those charges awaiting extradition and perfecting that extradition. I don't know what remedy that's going to obviously require, but it is filed in the context of a motion to dismiss. So it raises another interesting issue. Uh, Matt, thank you for joining. I know you had to drop out. Mike, we had a great time talking with you last week. What is good in your world? And uh, what are you picking up from this FTX mess? Um, honestly, it, it for the entire sector, it becomes in, very confusing because on one end, the domestic end, we have this fight with the regulatory agencies defining whether or not this is a security or a commodity then we're going to take it to the international realm and then we're going to start bringing extradition treaties into this. So I think it's unfortunate that this fight is playing out this way because I just think it adds another layer of complexity that people aren't necessarily ready to deal with. Yeah, there are a lot of issues of complexity in this case. That is putting it uh, mildly. Um, so there are a slew of motions and there are a slew of arguments being raised here. Not at all surprising given what's at stake here in this case. I think aggressive motion practice is no surprise from the defense team and anything that they can do to frustrate the government in getting a clear pathway to convictions in this case, anything that they can do to test the facts of this case. They're asking for a bill of particulars, uh, they don't have sufficient information within the discovery to uh, adequately defend the case. This is something that's also commonly raised in complex cases like this. Um, the complex nature of the business involved and the allegations concerning SBF, uh, without further particulars and without additional pretrial disclosures, the defense team feels like they are at a disadvantage. They are making some interesting requests in here. Uh, they want uh, a witness list sooner than normal. And they also want access earlier than the trial to what is known as Jenks material, which is information that the government is not obligated to disclose about what a witness has said uh, until such time as the witness is done with their direct testimony and subject to cross-examination. 
only technically at that time is the government under an obligation to hand over these Jenks materials, these reports that were generated that could impact cross-examination. And this uh, Jenks Act was largely created to protect witnesses uh, from potential threats or intimidation uh, if their information was leaked prior to them taking the stand to testify. So there's a strong public policy behind defending and protecting this information, but having experienced this firsthand in federal trial, it is no fun getting a box of documents just as the government uh, finishes their direct examination of a witness and then having to feverishly pour over the stuff and try to formulate cross based upon this what's called Jenks material. So criminal defense lawyers often fight to get the Jenks material as early as possible. And no surprise here, the defense team is making that same fight. I think this um, this bankruptcy position that they're taking is very interesting because when you're talking about Brady material, I related Brady material to the, 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 the attorney that's prosecuting in their office. And so to see that they're trying to bring in this other branch, because when you're talking, you're, you're in the bankruptcy court, that's another you know, system that you're dealing with. It's interesting to see that they're trying to make that reach over there. Without question, it definitely is. And I found it curious that um, that they are trying to use this as an opening to get additional uh, discovery because they're essentially arguing that the lawyers and the bankruptcy team is is more or less acting. I mean, the motion is titled Memorandum of Law in Support of Samuel Bankman's Freed Motion for Discovery on the basis that the that FTX is a member of the prosecution team. Um, this is an interesting argument to make because you do have concurrent litigation going on right now. You have bankruptcy. You have creditors who want to be made whole. You have uh, individuals who've been appointed as trustees and attorneys to help sort out this bankruptcy. And now you're have, you have this concurrent criminal prosecution where now the defense team is arguing that the work that's being done on the bankruptcy side is sort of hand in glove and under the control of the prosecution team, uh, allegedly, and that this is now working a hardship on the defense team because they're, they're essentially getting uh, less than full disclosure of what's going on as far as the discovery process here. Um, they touch on certain bedrock principles when it comes to these uh, rules, which is uh, Kyle's and Brady, which talk about prosecutors having a duty to learn of any favorable evidence known to others acting on the government's behalf. Uh, a prosecutor is deemed under the law as it is written in this, in this line of cases to have constructive knowledge of any information held by those whose actions can be fairly imputed to the prosecutor. So if they can make a connection between this bankruptcy team and the prosecution team, then they're going to try to impute knowledge on the prosecution team of information that should be turned over. And this motion, I think, will make for an interesting hearing. Uh, and I'm curious to see how the government's going to respond to this. I'm sure they're going to push back very aggressively. Um, one interesting quote from the motion the FTX debtors must be considered a member of the prosecution team 
because the government is relying on them to identify and produce Brady material, which is exculpatory material, Brady material from FTX's own documents. So kind of along the lines of what's been articulated here, they may be releasing information that they have in their close custody that is is obviously not only exculpatory, but important for, for Bankman Fried to be aware of if it's going to be used at trial in his case. Uh, I don't know about that. I would hold hard. I, I want to wholeheartedly push back against the argument for the simple fact. I personally branch those two into different things. Like, unless I'm wrong, I don't think bankruptcy proceedings are, are prosecutions. You're, you're listed as a plaintiff. And one, yeah. that should be a fundamental difference. And then secondly, bankruptcy proceedings, you, you're, you're going over the documents of the corporation or, or, or right. the entity that you're reviewing. So to say that your, your debtors are going to be providing exculpatory material makes no sense because you have control of all the documents that we're reviewing. We're just talking about the, like, I, I don't know. I, I, the government should make some strong responses to this. Well, I mean, they thought about that. They anticipated that was going to come because uh, head note one in this motion on page, I think, nine is titled, the government has effectively deputized FTX and its counsel as investigating agents to analyze and synthesize evidence. The FTX debtors work for the prosecution goes so far beyond, above and beyond the standard company cooperation that the government has effectively deputized the company to aid the prosecution. According to Mr. Ray, FTX has been working, quote, night and day, end quote, as part of an ongoing exercise to provide information to the prosecution upon request. So you make a good observation here. Are they going to be able to make the leap that simply doing the diligence on the bankruptcy side is enough to being fully deputized by the prosecution team? That is probably going to be a bridge too far, in my humble opinion, but Definitely an interesting argument to raise. I'm not sure where that's going to end up in this in this whole scheme of things. Anyone that has thoughts on any of this, of course, you're welcome, as always, to come up and speak. Ash, props on your show last week on AI music. Awesome. Really thoroughly enjoyed listening to it, and I think you need to do more of those shows. Uh, that is definitely an area that needs to be further explored and developed. And who better to talk about it than you, Ash Kernan. So thank you for that. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. You know, and I know full well, it's a lot of work to do these spaces. So props to you. And you, st you stuck in there a heck of a lot longer than I do on a daily basis. I think you went over two hours. That's crazy. Well, I think Jenko is out for today. Unfortunately, whatever IRL issue came up has pretty well derailed his appearance on today's show. Uh, I am happy to continue the conversation. If you have anything new or additional you want to cover today, Mike, or we can wrap it up early. Any other thoughts kicking around that you want to talk about in the space? Um, not specifically here. I think AI, uh, if Ash wants to come up and give you know, a little talk about AI, because again, there's a, I think educational, education wise, we should probably start discussing how we're going to incorporate these things or what it looks like for the everyday. Um, yeah. If you guys want to cover that, that'd be great. Ash, the AI guru, he's probably going to save it for another show this week. So we'll wait and see and stay tuned for that. 
Also to be uh, seen is the response the SEC plans to make. Uh, Coinbase filed a mandamus asking an appellate court to uh, compel the SEC to finally respond and finally chime in on why they have not uh, made any formal written response to their original inquiry uh, to the SEC for guidance. That should be coming out, I believe, uh, first part of next week. So we'll stay tuned for that. We'll continue to monitor what's going on in the space, as well as uh, additional legal developments that are incoming. Matt tipped me off to the sentencing in the Coinbase Insider Trading case. So I'm going to jump into that as well, take a look at what happened in that sentencing hearing, try to piece together what's going on there. And I think for today, probably a good place to stop. I really do appreciate everyone jumping into the conversation today. Mike, thank you for taking on the co-pilot seat. Thank you to Matt for jumping in. Love seeing you out there, Ash, and to everyone who joined us today. Thank you as always. Kind of a weird week in our space with uh, the Bitcoin blockchain uh, congestion of traffic and outrageously high minor fees on the ETH side and shitcoin season in full throttle which has pretty much made NFTs really, really slow in active daily volume. So clearly we are in a transitional period right now. And I think everyone's trying to figure out how we're going to come out on the other side of all of this. But apparently Amazon is going to be dropping their own NFT soon. So maybe that will uh, spark some additional traffic on NFT trading platforms. As always, a pleasure. Jenko, sorry, could not uh, have you on today. Hope all is well with you. Hope everyone has a great day, and we will do this again on Friday. We'll talk soon, everybody. Thank you for joining the conversation.